13. As we near the end of our time in the book of Romans. And then once you have that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of these 12 verses, I'll read aloud as you follow along silently in your Bibles. And of course, just in case you're not familiar, we use the ESV here, and it's okay if you're using some of the translation. A few of the words might be different. Uh, just wanted you to know that in front. So I'm going to pick up at verse 1. Uh, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who is who excuse me, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for his blessing on our time. Oh, gracious Father, we give thanks to you. You are so kind and merciful. We thank you for this beautiful gift of your word that you have preserved through the ages and even have allowed it to be translated into our language so that we might understand what you have said. May you speak to our hearts today. Pardon our sins, iniquities, trespasses, and in any ways that we have grieved your spirit. We do pray that you would minister to us. Take the text and the things that are said, Lord, and would you uh, use whatever points you want to use in each person's life as you know it in detail. You know what each person needs to focus on and what needs to be encouraged, what needs to be corrected. I don't know, but you know. And so, Lord, would you connect with your people today where they have felt like they have connected with you? I thank you for the Worship through song that we've already sang, and those hearts have been warmed. And I pray that uh, we would be receptive to what your word says to us today. We pray these things in the name of your son and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you've spent any time on the Internet perusing websites or looking at things, and if you've ever found your way down into the endless comment sections, you've probably discovered that People are not always friendly on the Internet. They're not always the most encouraging. Uh, Angie, who is a Christian, uh, she also is a homeschooling mom of seven children. And in her spare time, I don't know where she finds it at, but she does, uh, she blogs. And she talked about one of her experiences that happened back in July of 2015 uh, about her experience with her audience, her readers, that was not so pleasant. Back during this time, uh, one of her children, one of her sons, was celebrating his seventh birthday. And in order to do that, they thought it would be a good idea to take him to see the Minions movie. So they took him to see the Minions movie, and they posted online about, with pictures showing how they had gone and saw the Minions movie and and hung out. And so they felt compelled uh, to share online because they had, for whatever reason, perhaps in their Bible study, in their own personal convictions, thought that they should share, as she said in her post, her opinion about not being able to endorse as a believer where they had come to uh, the Minions movie and where they were at personally on this and that this was their opinion as a family. And so in order to not cause confusions, they then removed all of the pictures from the birthday from on their website to take that down because they didn't want people to get mixed messages about they were saying one thing but then showing another. And so they said, hey, in light of our conviction about this, as we've thought about this, 
our, our personal conviction of where we are on this is here, and I, I really can't endorse uh, Dominion's moving. And so, as you know, you have various responses. There were those who applauded her for, hey, thanks for speaking up as a believer. You know, most of her readers are believers, and some thought that. But then there was a, another group uh, who were believers who did not respond, as she says, so kindly. Uh, and she said it was hard for her not to take it personally uh, as she read through the comments section of the things that people were saying. Uh, some of these uh, who saw things differently, who were believers, uh, she felt like they were judging her and her husband. Some of them condemned their parenting approach. Some accused them of allowing, not allowing their children to actually have a childhood by being overly legalistic. And that was very grievous to her. And so she wrote another post about what she had experienced. See, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we operate out of a policy that does not condone differences within the realm of genuine Christianity. And as a result, we often adopt an attitude that says, if you don't think like me on every point of doctrine or Christian ethics, either you're not a true believer or I don't have any time for you. To put it plainly, we don't, as Christians, often know how to disagree and still maintain unity in the body of Christ. And sadly, if someone confronts us over our stance in this matter about disunity, whether that's in our attitude or behavior, we often will either deny it or we'll find verses or use spiritual language to create a spiritual smokescreen to hide behind. But the Apostle Paul has something to say about how we interact with other Christians with whom we disagree. And this matter is so important to the Apostle Paul that he spends, you know, we did, he didn't have chapter divisions or verses that was later added. He just was writing a letter. Uh, but in our Bibles today, all of chapter 14 and most of 15 dealing with this issue. And so for the next several weeks, will be each people from our preaching team will be unpacking what Paul had to say about unity in the local church when believers disagree about how to live out our Christian lives. Today we're covering only the first 12 verses, so I'm going to raise three concepts and more will be added on to fully explore this concept of what Paul has in mind as it deals with us relating to one another when we don't agree about how the Christian life should be lived. The first two concepts that I want to point out arises or is grounded in verses 1 through 3. So if you look at the text, you'll notice there that the Apostle Paul is addressed or addressed an issue causing tension among the members of the churches of the house churches in Rome, which he is viewing as, in light of what he's writing, as detrimental to the unity of the church. According to one scholar uh, looking at things and who have done tons of research on it said there was probably at least eight house churches in the city of Rome spread throughout the var various districts in the city. And most likely we can conclude from that because of the way Paul's writing that this was one church that gathered in several locations uh, because of space limitations. Uh, buildings weren't yet part of the church concept, and so they just met in what they had, which were homes. And so your home was only a certain size. You can only gather so many people, so you had to break the church up into various homes. And that's most likely what's going on. And the disagreement is about how each believer should live to demonstrate their loyalty to God in their daily lives. And so Paul is going to, in the text, identify for us the two sides of the argument. And maybe there was a third side, but Paul identifies two camps. In 14.1, he labels one camp as the weak group. And 15.1, he labels the, other, labels the other group as the strong group. Now, weak and strong here have to do with faith. That's what he says in verse 14, verse 1. It is a, it's weak in faith. Uh, Paul's not talking, though, about saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about faith as it pertains to one's conscience. So what a believer does to be or esteems to be right or wrong as they live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, what is clear from the text is that both groups have saving faith in Jesus Christ, and both are seeking to live a life that pleases the Lord. So here's where the differences come in. 
The weak group is probably mostly comprised of Christ followers who are Jewish, with a few Gentiles mixed in, perhaps some proselytes who had converted to Judaism or worse, thinking about converting to Judaism before they came to faith in Christ. And the strong group is probably mainly comprised of those who are from Gentile backgrounds with, with some Jews in. Paul is going to put himself with the strong group. So we, we know there's some Jews mixed in there. The weaker either smaller in number or they're definitely lower in social status to the strong. And the weak have this belief that there are certain elements of the law that need to still be followed in order to show faithfulness to God. And it has to do with these food things and drinking things and days, Jewish feast days. The strong group, on the other hand, feel a sense of liberty and light up as they're understanding what Christ has done, their place in the turning of the ages with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how the new era has dawned into the world. And now we're believers who are followers of God, being in Christ, how they, under this new covenant, have a new relationship with God and how that has affected their relationship with the Mosaic law. Now, the way the text comes across, depending on how you translate it, they also may observe some Jewish feast days, but just not all of them. So that may be the dispute, whereas one group is observing all and some are just observing some. That may be part of how the dispute is playing out. So based on what Paul wrote, based on the historical information and cultural information that we have about the past through other writings and what we know about that period of time, and trying to piece back the scenario of what's going on, some hold that the conflict was surfacing when believers got together. Either believers were getting together in homes to, to fellowship together, and as they were in their homes together, the issue was showing up, or it was when they had a large communal gathering on these Jewish feast days. The whole church was getting together, and as the church got together, and as part of their worship, they would eat together, perhaps even celebrate the Lord's table, but there was food there that was prepared, and all the believers would eat, and as they gathered to eat, these issues became pronounced. As some people passed over certain things, and wouldn't eat it. We know from the text there's, at least from the weak group, they're not eating meat or drinking wine. Now, why is that the case? Well, in light of culture, but perhaps, and if they're being law observant, most likely what's going on here is they're concerned about the way things are prepared. They're not sure whether or not their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ who were in charge of the meal and in charge of preparing the dishes did it in a kosher way. And so it's not necessarily that they didn't eat meat or drink wine at home. They probably did because they were the ones preparing it. But when you go out somewhere else and you're not sure the person cooking the food, how they cook the food, and you have some qualms about how food is cooked, then you know what you do. You just don't eat. Pass me the salad. Take some water, thank you. Meat, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, appreciate you. <laughs> We're good, we're good. Let it pass over. And that's what's going on. And this is, of course, causing some conflict in light of the fact of how much food plays into relationships uh, during the first century. And so there's this conflict that's happening, and it's disadvantaging, of course, the weak. And so the first thing that Paul kind of raises that I think is relevant for us as well, although we have a different cultural situation going on in our day is that he wants believers to pursue peaceful relationships with other Christians with whom they disagree in order to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Pursue peaceful relationships with other Christians with whom we disagree for the sake of unity. Now, let me quickly cover the two ways in which he gives us to do this, or at least he gave them and by way of them, us. We start off at the beginning of chapter 14, we notice that he tells the strong group, and then he later catches the, the other group and says, welcome the other person. He commands them to do that. In the case of the Roman church, the strong group are seem to be in a position of power to exclude those who are in the weak group, but Paul commands them to include them in the gathering. But he says to them, listen, I don't just want you to include them in the way that you might want to include them. And, and, and this is what Paul's addressing. So you want to include them. Hey, yeah, we want you to be at the church service. We want you to come to the church meal afterwards. But the reason I want you at the church meal is so I can start a conversation with you so I can correct you. So it's fine for you to be there and show up. But the reason I want you there 
is so I can tell you about where you're wrong and try to fix you. That's the reason why I want you to be there and I want to welcome you. Paul's saying, that's not the way I want you to do it. I don't want you to welcome them in for the sake of you trying to correct them. I don't even want you to try to correct them. What I want you to do is genuinely accept them as brothers and sisters of Christ and you guys fellowship and love one another. And why does he do this? Well, he roots his command in what God has already done. If you notice in the text, he says, God has already welcomed them. So he reminds them, look, God has those who are in the strong group, those who are in the weak group, God has already welcomed them. In light of Acts, we see that how do we know this? Because God gave those who are in the strong group his spirit, and he gave those who are in the weak group his spirit. And so both people have been accepted by God. And so what Paul wants them to think about is that, hey, listen, God is the one who has already said they're acceptable, even though you don't deem that. And so Paul wants us to remember that those who we're in disagreement with who are other believers, they also belong to God. And so the question I think that's implied is, in light of that fact, does any Christ follower have the right to overrule God and whom he has accepted and welcomed into his family? Two, the second thing from the text is that Paul seeks to squelch the negative thinking that often leads, leads to negative conversation within the circles with whom you agree as you deal with or view or talk about those who are in the other camp who are also Christ followers. Paul tells to the strong, listen, stop looking down on or demising or despising those who are in the weak group. Perhaps the conversation went a little something like this when people who were in the strong category got together and they were just amongst themselves. Yeah, you know they're just a bunch of legalists. They don't have any faith. You know what? I even wonder if some of them are really Christians. You know what? They may need to get saved. That's why they're still trying to hold on to the law. They don't really know what's going on here. The weak group on the other side, Paul says to them, hey, listen, I want you to stop judging your brothers and sisters. And then when the weak people got together and they were in their group or the weak group and they were with people that they felt comfortable with and they were willing to talk and share their thoughts and minds, they probably see a bunch of liberals. They don't care about holy living. How can they love God and not care about the law? Bet you some of them are not even really Christians. Yep, some of them probably still need to get saved. They're not real. They're not serious about this Christian life. See, Paul knew that negative thoughts and conversations about other Christians will ultimately lead to disunity in the body of Christ. And if the church starts to fracture within itself, ultimately what ends up happening is that the witness, the gospel witness to the city is hampered. Paul's concerned about the gospel witness, concerned about God's mission, the mission of Christ moving forward in the city of Rome, in the city of Harrisburg. About 100 years after Paul's letter in the city of Rome, another Christian would write. His name was Justin Martyr. And he was in a dialogue with a Jew by the name of Trifo. And in talking about this, he, he gives us this line about what's going on and where things have progressed since Paul wrote 100 years before about how Christ-following Gentiles were thinking about and responding to Christ-following Jews who were still somewhat law-observant. He said this, speaking about the Christ-following Gentiles and responding to Trifo's question. There are such people, Trifo, and these do not venture to have any intercourse with, here to referring to conversation, or extend hospitality to such persons, but I do not agree with them. Justice says, here in the city of Rome, now 100 years later, you got these Christ-following Gentiles, and they're so much divided over this issue that they won't talk to let alone eat with Christ-following Jews. If you're not talking to, not eating with, then there's no unity. Dr. Erwin Lutzer provides a much more sobering historical example that happened over a millennia after the days of Justin Martyr about how far things can go when Christian relationships go down this negative path between Christ followers. January 5th, 1527, six men were forcibly drowned in a river in Zurich, Switzerland. 
Today, if you were to go there today, there's a plaque that commemorates this event. Honored the name of those six men. The leader of that group was Felix Mance. When he was being drowned, the story is told that his mother was in the background shouting to him over the sound of the waves, urging her son, don't give up on the faith. Stay true to faith in Jesus Christ. You might ask, well, what was their crime for which they were subjected to the death penalty? Although they had been baptized as infants, they rebaptized one another as adults upon profession of faith in Jesus. Because as they studied the scriptures, they had come to the conclusion that infant baptism was not supported in the scriptures. And only after you had come to faith as an adult and could profess that, that they thought you should be baptized. And so they would drown. The Zurich City Council decreed whoever baptizes someone will be apprehended by our Lord and drown without mercy. Zwingli, the great reformer who had mentored these six men, agreed with the city council's decision and stood by and watched them as they were drowned. Why did the city take this action? Well, the civil authorities, along with the reformers, believed that the rebaptism would cause a breakup in the uniformity of Christendom. If this were allowed, there would be a separate church within the regional church, and this could not be tolerated. Infant baptism for them at that time represented citizenship and unity within the Holy Roman Empire, and so thousands were drowned, some burned, and others were forced to dig their own graves. The reformer Martin Luther had a different perspective about what happened, and this is what he had to say about it. It is not right, and I am deeply troubled that the poor people are so pitifully put to death, burned, and cruelly slain. Let everyone believe what he likes. If he is wrong, he will have punishment enough in hellfire. Unless their sedition wants you to oppose them with scripture and God's word. With fire, you won't get anywhere. Luther's view seems to be much closer to what Paul was getting at, although later he did change his position. Paul points out that the path that believers who are differing on certain things as Christ follows ought to maintain unity when dealing with these disagreements by pursuing peaceful relationships with other Christians. I like the way New Testament scholar Dr. Harold Kimes sums up the sentiment of what Paul is getting at here. He says, our purpose is not to convince others of our position, but to accept others in spite of their differing opinions. So we might ask ourselves genuinely, are there people in our lives who are genuine believers that differ from us, perhaps on certain points of doctrine, certain Christian, Christian ethics, and we despise them. Or maybe we, our conscience is a little bit more restrictive in certain areas, and we look at others who are not living by the standards we believe or exemplary of a Christian life, and we are judging them as less than sufficient. And are there certain Christians who, because of their differences of opinions on certain things, you won't welcome, eat with, fellowship with, or even talk to. Where are you at in dealing with those with whom you disagree? We find the second thought, a concept that I want to raise from the text in verses 4 through 9. Let's revisit those verses and read them again, and I'll share what it is, the thoughts I think Paul is getting at here. Picking up at verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of, of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems them all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we are live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Here's the second concept I would like to put before you to consider. Leave matters of conscience between a fellow believer and the Lord. Leave matters of conscience before a fellow believer and the Lord. Paul is here, as we believe, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Paul places this dispute that's going on in the church at Rome during the first century in the category of conscience. 
Now, he's going to go on later, and Mike Bongo will get a share next week as he explores this more and unpacks it more. He'll explain more as he tells you, as Paul states, where his conscience is and his personal conviction on these matters are as he lays it out. But in the text, there's one thing we ought to observe, and that is that Paul does not tell the strong to correct the weak. He says instead to leave it between the individual and God for the sake of peace and unity within the local body. Paul reminds both people that the person on the other side of the debate who's different than you is also striving to try to live their life to please the Lord Jesus Christ. But their conscience is convicting them differently. Could have been in for any number of reasons. Here's a couple. Perhaps it's that where they are in their spiritual development and their theological development of understanding certain concepts. Perhaps it's because of their heritage and trying to understand how these things fit into their identity of who they are as persons and their faith is in Jesus for salvation, but they're still trying to figure out how their identity fits in light of these things. And they see that doing these things is the best way to be faithful to God or perhaps some other reason. But what Paul makes clear that's not in dispute is that Jesus is the only one who has died for our sins and been raised. And in light of that reality, he is the only one who is master. Paul goes on to say, I don't have time to explore the concepts and tie into first century concepts and Old Testament ideas here. But what Paul gets at ultimately is Jesus is the only one who is Lord over those who dwell in the realm of the dead and those who dwell, dwell in the realm of the living. The living. The point is, we're not the master. Jesus is. And we need to allow him to be the master because Jesus is the one who ultimately is going to determine who's acceptable and who's not acceptable. He's the one who's going to determine who receives divine favor and who does not receive divine favor because he's the only one who has the right to judge. Paul says, as a believer, no, our focus needs to be shifted in a different direction, which is we ought to all individually be seeking to live lives that are pleasing to the one who, who, who does really matter, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether you do something or refrain from doing something, the purpose and the goal that ought to be uniting us all is that we're doing it for God's glory. Two authors who write a book on the conscience, and you'll get to hear more about this in the weeks to come, but let me just give you a little bit of a preview of some of these things. After reviewing all the New Testament writings where the concept of the conscience shows up, defines the conscience in this way. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Now, they give a few valuable insights because they spent a whole book talking about it. I can't go through the entirety of the book, but let me give you just a, a couple of things that are, uh, help us shape our minds in the right direction that are, are pertinent for us as we think about this text. One, no two people have the exact same conscience. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Secondly, Nobody's conscience perfectly match, matches the will of God. The only human whose will and conscience perfectly match God's will is Jesus. Paul seems to imply this in Romans chapter 12, if you remember how he started that off, right? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation implies change needs to happen, which means there's some area in my life where I don't line up with God just right. But also the conscience is moldable. It can be damaged. It can be hardened. It can be silenced. Or it can be developed to align more so with God's will. With those things in mind, the question then becomes, did Paul intend for all Christian beliefs and Christian practices to be left in matters of conscience for the sake of preserving peace and unity? Does anything I believe, anything I hold to in the Christian sphere of belief, is everything okay just to be like, hey, you know, that's a matter of conscience. Just let, let you believe what you believe, I believe what I, I believe. Well, the short answer is no. Let me give you a few examples of this. 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, if you remember, as Paul is going into the whole discussion of the resurrection because there's errant views on that within the Corinthian church, he says that there are matters, there are doctrines that are to be considered of first importance. There's a ranking or order of doctrines. And there are some things that are in this category that are above other things. Here, what he talks about is the message of Christ. That message, the gospel message, which, uh, if not believed, moves one outside of the realm of the kingdom of God. These things, not matters of conscience, need to be dealt with. We see this play out in the, the, letter, to the, the letter to the Galatians, the believers there who are dealing with some things about as there's some Judaizers who are trying to come in and, and add on to the gospel message that, they're, that in order to be right with God, to receive forgiveness of sins, that there's something outside of the message about Jesus and what he's done and accomplished that needs to be added on in order to have right standing with God. And Paul says, that's not a matter of opinion. Nope. He firmly opposes that and pushes that outside and says, there's a drawing line here that needs to be a division. He even confronts Peter for acting in a way with the behavior that says something untrue about the gospel. And he says, that's not a matter of conscience. There's a right and a wrong here. So when it comes to matters that deal with salvation, deal with whether a person is in the kingdom or out of a kingdom, those are not matters left to conscience. But he says something else, too. In the same letter to the Corinthians, there are some things that deal with the issue of sin, where God is clearly defined, and those don't dwell in the realm of conscience either. There's a clear definition about what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you one illustration. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this to the church who has a believer in it that's living in such gross sin that even he says Gentiles, here referring to the unbelievers in society, don't even sin in this way. Notice what he says. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, we might say sister here, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to, notice what the text says, eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul takes sin very seriously, and he says that's not a matter of conscience. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a chapter later, verses 9 through 10, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says sin is so important that it keeps people out of the kingdom of God. There are certain doctrines certain beliefs, certain Christian practices and ethics that are indisputable. They're of the first order category. The most influential Western church father and doctor, Bishop Augustine, wrote this about what Paul says in this text. Paul says this so that when something might be done with either good or bad motives, we should leave the judgment to God and not presume to judge the heart of someone else, which we do not see. But when it comes to things which obviously could not have been done with good and innocent intentions, it is not wrong if we pass judgment. So in the matter of food, whether it is not known what the motive in eating is, Paul does not want us to be judges, but God. But in the case of that abominable immorality where a man had taken his stepmother, Paul taught us to judge. Now, thankfully, modern Christian scholars have taken the time to try to order beliefs in categories or levels of importance. The main division is beliefs, practices, things that are the dividing line between in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Those are first order issues. In the kingdom issues, out of the kingdom issues, first order issues. Not disputable. Not in the category for conscience. Now, even in this, not every believer is agreed about how many categories of beliefs there are. Some have three categories, some have four. If I kept reading more and more, probably there might have been five out there or six. They have different orders of beliefs. But let me, let me use the one with the three, kind of lay it out as orders of beliefs. So there's definitely those things in the indisputable category 
and all of them agree that those things that are core to the Christian faith that determines whether one is a Christian or not in the kingdom or out of the kingdom are indisputable. Some of the things that would be in that category would be like belief in God, the God of the Bible, the person and nature of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, and as I've already stated, issues of sin. These are matters which when people are unrepentant and don't, will not be corrected on that, the church is right to exclude them from the local fellowship. Now, all other beliefs, that is, those not in that category, fall within the realm of inside the sphere of Christianity. But even in that, all these beliefs, and these beliefs don't determine whether a person is a Christian or not, these beliefs are within the family of God as we're trying to work out our living in Christ. But even there, they order the beliefs out for them as to uh, which ones have more importance for certain things and then which ones are definitely clearly issues of conscience. So most of them have this second category that has to do with church order in the sense of uh, an importance as it relates to how a local church has to function, that some decisions have to be made in order for a local church to function. For instance... A local church leadership and body has to agree that to a degree doesn't mean that everybody in that local body agrees with that particular view, but they agree that, hey, this is the way the church, the lead, church leadership said this is going to function. So, for instance, the church leadership has to determine which view do we believe in light of our understanding of Scripture, where do we come down on this issue in the sense of so how that we're going to practice that in the body. So that's why it's an issue. Another one. Uh, issue of church governance. Are we a congregational church? Are we one that believes in the presbytery? Are we an independent congregation? All those things as they play out, play into the beliefs and how that church functions so that there can be unity in how the church functions. It doesn't mean that every person who's a member of that church is going to exactly hold to that specific view, and that doesn't make them a non-Christian. It just means they have a different view on that topic because of wherever their conscience is in light of what they've studied in Scripture. But in order for a church to function, those things rise up so that the local church can function in there. And that's how we often divide into various denominations. And then there are other things that fall definitely within the category of, uh, well, there's another category too, but using the third, the three-part division, uh, matters of definitely matters of conscience. Two examples here just to kind of give you an idea of what might fall in that. You can go out and look these lists up and they'll tell you how they break these things down. But sometimes one of the things that often comes up is how Christians choose what holidays they're going, to, they're going to celebrate. So, some believers believe that Christmas is a pagan holiday, has pagan origins, and for them and their family, say, look, we don't get down like that. We don't celebrate Christmas. We don't believe in that. We don't know when Jesus was born. And our conviction is that it is wrong to celebrate Christmas. That's okay. There are other believers who are like, look, we love Christmas. We got gifts, trees, we're celebrating presents, we open up with family, we're reading the Christmas story, we're reading in the narratives, we're singing Christmas carols. We love Christmas, and we celebrate Christmas. Realm of conscience. Realm of conscience. For some, it has to do with dress. Some of us may be like, you know, I'm going to throw on some jeans and a nice top, and I'm going to church to go worship the Lord. Some others of us, because of perhaps our backgrounds and stuff, it's like, look, you can't go to church in no jeans and a nice top. You better put a suit on or put on a nice dress and go there because you want to give God your best. So y'all can't be in a church meeting and wear those kind of clothes. I don't feel comfortable doing that. My conscience is convicting me. Matter of conscience. Now, just don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that, that these beliefs are not important, that we should just brush them to the side and not care. No, we need to study God's word and at some point come down on what we, what we believe God is teaching. But there are certain things that fall in the category of conscience, and believers who both love God, who are both serving God, may come to different conclusions even though they're looking at the same text on some of these issues. And those things that need to be left between that believer and God. Now, New Testament scholar Dr. D.A. Carson provides some helpful guidance as he talks about this, as we try to ferret out what's, what falls into which category because there can be some difficulty here as he, he explains this. 
he lays out a few things here, and he says one, one of the things that he talks about is this idea that just because a Christian doctrine or, or practice has been disputed doesn't mean it's in the realm of conscience. Most of our Christian doctrines that the church holds that are even core to the faith have been disputed at some point, and just because they're disputed doesn't mean that they're in the category of conscience. What matters is what the Scriptures consistently say and com communicate about that topic and how it relates to other topics. He goes on and then he looks at what Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter in chapters 8 through 11, and draws out some other points. And one of the things that's clear, Bongo will get into this more. I'll just simply state it for right now. He'll explain it more. But this, if you're a believer and you're seeking to live your life to please God, and there is one of these matters of conscience, and your conscience convicts you differently than another believer, you should never sin against your conscience. They may be okay with wearing jeans and a nice top to church. But if your conscience is bothering you and you feel like you have to wear a suit or a nice dress to church, then put it on. Because in that sense, if you violate it, then you'll end up in sin. Never violate your conscience. He also goes on to say that love sometimes restricts us from taking advantage of an area that we might have liberty in in Christ. Just because something is in a disputable category doesn't mean a Christian is free to engage in it because there's a higher law that's operating in and behind the scenes for us that we're always bound to, and that is the law of love. Sometimes what's in the disputable category might shift into the indisputable category when it begins to violate a clear command of Scripture. Now, an example he gives here is of a family that, like, so... One of the things that's disputable is, should a Christian play sports on Sunday or not? Some of us, you may be fine with that. Others may be like your conscience says, don't do it. It's a sin. And you just don't do it. So he gives this illustration of a family where he talks about this family who uh, is supporting their child in sports. And their child, right, is, is heavily involved. And what they end up doing is they get so involved in sports that what they end up doing is they just forsake the assembly of the, of the body. Stop going to church. Don't have anything to do with church. Just leave church for months at a time. In light of the fact that what Hebrews says, that we are not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together where there's a clear command, now what was in the disputable category has shifted into the indisputable category because there is a clear violation of a command of Scripture, and that believer needs to be corrected. He goes on to say that, that we should not major on minor beliefs. Here he draws upon the example of where Paul is talking about celibacy. Now, Paul talks about being single, right? And he points out that, like himself, there's some advantages in serving God in being single. A person who is single has some advantages over the married person because the married person, if you're married, you know what it's like as you're trying to please your spouse and sometimes please the Lord. There can be a division there of divided interests of what you're trying to do and trying to do both things. But Paul doesn't go so far as to say, if you're a believer, you're in sin. Paul never says that. And he disciplines those or corrects those who take a belief and a minor belief and try to raise it and say, look, marriage is not a good thing. You ought not to do that. Paul says, no, that cannot be tolerated because they've taken something minor and elevated to a category it should never be in. See, the believer is not to live his life or her life asking, what can I get away with? The question is, how can I live to please God? Here's some questions that as we make decisions in life, that Dr. Carson, I'll quote him on this, gives us to consider that should be rolling around in our minds as we live out our Christian lives. One, what will bring glory to God? Two, what will sanctify me? What conduct will enable me to adorn the gospel? What does it really mean for me to take up my cross and follow Jesus? What would contribute to me preparing to be a resident of the new heaven and the new earth? What will contribute to fruitful evangelism? What beliefs and practices nudge me back to the cross of Christ and forward to loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving my neighbor as myself? I think that old well-known phrase that sums this up can, of Paul's sentiment is aptly stated. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity.
That brings me to the final thing in the text, and we'll get ready to wrap up here as the time is running. Let's go back and visit our final verses. Verses 10 through 12, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or do or you? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul reminds the believers in Rome and the believers here at Living Water and, well, the believers all over that each one of us has to stand before God someday, specifically Christ, and explain the reason for how we've lived our lives attitudes, actions, motives that we've had in our heart, and God will be the one who will judge our conviction. And Paul's pushing at this point again to remind believers, this is God's area, not ours. God knows what we think. He knows what we say. He knows about the secret conversations that have been had under the cover of darkness or in the room, in the circles that you feel comfortable with. God has heard it all. He's seen it all, and he remembers it all. And he'll deal with it. He knows what's in a person's heart. He knows why they're doing what they're doing, even when we don't. So he'll be the judge of people's matters of conscience, and he'll do it accurately. Paul here quotes from Isaiah 45, 23, which he later applies in Philippians 2 to the person of Christ. And he reminds us that when God appears, he's going to make everyone acknowledge that he is God, and everyone will have to give a confession on that day. In that moment, we, like all other human beings, will stand before God. Those secure in our salvation will give an answer for the lives that we've lived and the decisions that we made and how we've interacted with other believers, the things that we've said about them or thought about them, those who we disagree with in our minds. God remembers it all. Now, it's one thing to read that in the text. It's another, t- it's another thing to take some time to contemplate what is it like to stand before the living God with whom all things are laid bare and talk to him about how I've lived my life in light of what his word taught and the decisions that I've made. And so I ask you, what will you say to God on your day when you stand before him and give an account for your life? Let me close with a testimony that illustrates potentially two approaches of how we might deal with others as believers. New Testament Stevens uh, Runge, a New Testament scholar, shares his personal testimony. He says back when he was in his 20s, he's not in his 20s now, he came to church with, like most of us, although we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we bring some baggage with us, Uh, sometimes lingering sin issues. You know, like for most of us, we come to faith, but Unfortunately, not every issue in our life just drops right off. Although we all wish it would and we live exactly like Jesus in every area, it doesn't always happen that way. Things do drop off, but not everything. And so there were issues that needed to be addressed in his life. And he was doing his best as a new believer in Jesus Christ to to spend time in God's word, to to get involved with ministry and to, to share his faith with others that he knew were not believers. But he still had rough edges that needed smoothing out. And when he got involved in a local assembly and as he got to get in relationships with other believers, they soon discovered that he still had some of these rough edges. Let's like, you know, perhaps when we get in relationships with people in church, we find out that they're not as smooth as we hoped they would be. Perhaps we know we're those thorny people. Some bowling told him what he needed to change. Others took a different approach. They invited him over their houses, brought him under their wings, built a relationship with him, and began to spend time and disciple him. The first group just simply told him about their faith and what they thought about his faith, and where they thought, where they thought it was deficient at. The second group, he says, they modeled their faith and shared their lives with him. And over time, as the years passed, Issues began to fall off his life as God, through these believers and the work of the Spirit, began the process that Paul talks about in Philippians 1, that God's faithfulness, and the process that he started when he first confessed his sin and placed faith in Jesus for salvation and as his Lord, God continued that process and continues it to this day. 
And he asked this question, can you guess which of those two groups were most effective in helping him walk out his Christian life? I'm sure you know which one because you probably know which group you would prefer to have in your life. Brothers and sisters, we have a way of of addressing and dealing with others. Paul says when we have disagreements on matters of conscience, pursue peace with other Christians with whom you disagree. Leave matters of conscience between that believer and God. He will judge. And remember, we will all give an account to God someday as we stand before him and our lives lay bare as he reveals the secrets and intentions of all men and women's, boys and girls' hearts. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of it. And Lord, perhaps this was convicting for some of us as we recently, as the Spirit has brought to mind conversations, things, ways we've acted and thought about, and probably maybe even currently thinking about other believers who are genuinely other believers that see things differently, especially on these matters of conscience, differently than us. We thank you that we have this tangible way to show our unity as we pull our resources together in this offering. We, we take what is ours individually and put it with other believers to support the mission of Christ moving forward in the world. And we pray that what is true of what we do in our offering will become true of how we live out our lives with one another. Would you help us, Lord? Forgive us for times past when we've tried to climb up on your throne and sit in judgment on another believer to say whether or not they're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom because on matters of conscience, they have a different view. As they're though, although they're seeking to live faithfully for you. Not talking about sin issues, but they're trying to live out their life faithfully to you and just have a different conviction on that. Forgive us and help us to climb down off of your your seat and go back to where we belong. As Paul says in the text, the role of a servant, knowing that we have a master, the one who died for us and who lives now forevermore, Jesus. And to him we will all give an answer on the day when he appears and is revealed from heaven. May we have compassion as we deal with others who differ. May we have wisdom to know how to deal with those issues that are in the indisputable category, Lord, that need to be addressed. But even to do that, as Paul says, with kindness. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.